All right, let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for the Advent season, especially uh, this year when we are all experiencing a lot of longing for change, uh, longing for uh, peace, for faith, for hope, for love. These themes uh, feel especially important after uh, a wild year. For many of us, it's the wildest year we've ever experienced in our life, Father, but these promises from the prophets, uh, the reality of Jesus' incarnation, his um, death and resurrection, his ascension, as we talked about in the New City Catechism today, that Jesus today sits at the right hand of the Father until he will come again and judge and restore the earth. Father, these promises are still true. And so would you help us to settle into those truths this morning, to uh, feel them, to be girded by them, to be strengthened uh, so that this Advent season, this Christmas season, uh, under very different circumstances than any Christmas we've ever experienced, that it would still be marked by deep faith, peace, joy, and love. We love you, and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's good seeing you this morning. My name is Dave Ainsworth. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, excited to be worshiping with you in the second week of Advent. Last week, CJ spoke on faith, and this week we are moving to the theme of the second Sunday of Advent, which is peace. Um, every couple years or so, we get the Sunday paper delivered to our house. Uh, it's really wishful thinking because eventually they pile up super high because we don't have time to actually read the paper, but it's fun while it lasts and it makes you feel very civilized to go downstairs and pick your paper up and bring it inside, even if you don't actually get to read much of it. Uh, whenever we've gotten the New York Times, uh, the first thing I would do is pull it out of its sleeve and then look at the front page, but then quickly move to the New York Times magazine to see what it was about. It's so beautiful and glossy. Um, it's always really compelling. And if I ever cracked the pages, before reading any article, I always would stop to admire the Manhattan real estate ads. Um, I didn't care about the Cartier ads or the Gucci ads or any of stuff like that, but the views from these Upper West Side penthouses are amazing. Um, I can't imagine what it would be like to live uh, there every day. These beautiful modern spaces, they're high above Central Park, like 20 stories up with huge windows, clean and comfortable, spacious, peaceful. These homes are for me a metaphor for peace. Uh, to live this ordered, quiet life above the fray, stories up with big windows so I can see outside, but thick glass so it's calm where I am. Uh, even now, I use Apple News, and the algorithm has learned that I like these kinds of things. And so I've got no interest in seeing articles about celebrities getting divorced or married or whatever happens. But I do very much want to know that Winona Ryder is selling her home in Cow Hollow that she's owned since 1995. Like, I know that. I want to know that. I want to see the pictures inside. I want to know how much it costs. Um, these are the things that I like to look at. Uh, these are guilty pleasures. Of course, there are two things wrong with the peace represented in these kinds of articles. Uh, the first thing that's wrong with them is the radical disconnect 
disconnect between the peace inside these houses and the lack of peace outside. Um, these homes, this peace, is a peace purchased with denial. I was flipping through one of these articles the other month about uh, Jay Balvin's two homes he had built for himself in Colombia. So you're beginning to see that this is a, a persistent problem in my life. Um, just being real, I didn't even know who Jay Balvin was before I read this article. Now I do. I have a playlist and sometimes I listen to his Latin beats. It's great. But um, I'm reading this article about these homes that he built and they are so beautiful. It is like a South American paradise that he has crafted for himself. But I couldn't shake the dissonance between the pictures I was looking at and everything else I have ever read in the New York Times about the nation of Colombia, a place marked by corruption and poverty and gang warfare, all these beautiful pictures, but it never mentioned any of it. It never even acknowledged the presence of a deeply broken country just outside these walls. And that's true of so many of these spaces, all these beautiful places I like to imagine life in. The peace on offer to them and to me depend on the implicit denial of an extreme lack of peace outside. So that it's hard not to read the article and not think, but what about those others? What about the people on the margins? Is now the time for peace? Is now the time to build houses like this? Didn't Jesus say that he was going to build a house for me, that I didn't have to build such a house, that he was going to prepare a place for me and that he would call me there later? That's one thing that's wrong with the peace in these pictures, but that's not all that's wrong. Not only is the outside not peaceful, but I am not peaceful. And so these apartments and condos and houses are so beautiful and calm, but they will stop being beautiful and calm and peaceful the moment I move in. The moment I bring my stuff and my heart and my desire, it will all fall apart. Um, it's been a running joke in our marriage every time we move that when we get this new house, we'll immediately be better people. And so Maggie and I will talk about like, man, we're going to run more. We're going to eat great. Our garage will always be organized. Our children will do all their chores without ever having to be yelled at. And if I could just change my exterior, my interior would change. Now, it's a joke. We know that that's not true. But deep down, I think it's true. Um, I do think that if I just changed my circumstances, I would be a better person. Rebecca Solnit, uh, who is also from San Francisco, writes about how houses can be dream vehicles for the self. And she writes, admiring houses from the outside is often about imagining entering them, living in them, having calmer, more harmonious, deeper life. But buying and decorating is so much easier than living or thinking according to those ideals. Thus, the dream of a house can be the eternally postponed preliminary step to taking up the lives we wish we were living. Houses are cluttered with wishes, the invisible furniture on which we keep bruising our shins. When I read that article a few years ago, it just skewered me um, because here I am, loving to look at places. And I've always loved to look at magazine articles, advertisements. And I always knew that it was a kind of guilty pleasure, but I didn't realize it was that guilty 
that in my window shopping, I am longing for an inaccessible peace. But it's not inaccessible just because I don't have millions of dollars to be able to buy these homes. It's inaccessible because the world is broken and because I am broken. The peace is not available to me. Advent is a season of honesty. Honesty about the world and honesty about ourselves. It's a season where we confess that we are tired of prophets and priests and advertisements which say peace, peace when there is no peace. We're tired of telling ourselves peace, peace when there is no peace. Advent is a season where we name our dissatisfaction with the way things are. In Advent, Christians refuse counterfeit peace. We will not settle for a peace that is just looking on the bright side of a dark world. We will not settle for a peace that is only for the wealthy and not for the marginalized. We will not settle for a peace that simply keeps the status quo. We want the peace that God promises us in Christ. We want peace that is cosmic, global, deep, secure, forever. We want peace that isn't achieved through compromise, but peace which comes through redemption, forgiveness, justice, reconciliation, healing, and resurrection from the dead. That's the image we have in Isaiah 2, a miraculous peace. It offers one of the most powerful metaphors for peace in all the Bible. In Isaiah 2, the prophet predicts a messianic future when, in verse 4, the nations shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Here is a future where righteousness is so secure, peace is so permanent, that the nations will no longer see any need for weapons. They will be so confident in Christ's just and gracious rule and Satan's complete defeat that they will melt down their swords and spears into garden tools. What a picture. The war industrial complex um, will turn itself into a farmer's market. The verse continues. It says, nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Our military colleges will graduate botanists. They'll shut down because why learn how to fight when there is only peace? Can you imagine a world like this? That is not the way it is today. In 1948, actually, this Bible verse, Isaiah 2-4, was engraved on a wall across from the United Nations while the United Nations was being built. It's called the Isaiah Wall, and following the terror of World War II, this was the world's great desire, that there would be no war, right? This World War II was the second war to end all wars. Can we finally be done with swords and spears? Of course, in this picture, people are protesting the Vietnam War because we weren't done with swords and spears. Uh, We're not done today. Just last week, I was reading an article uh, that there is a new arms race between China, Russia, and the United States in space. Uh, So there is strategies for war and weapons to be used from space. I can't think of a more peaceful place than space. There is literally no sound. It is perfectly quiet. And yet in 2020, space is the new high ground for war. When when humans move somewhere, we bring violence with us. When humans aren't fighting, we're preparing to fight. And this is true at a nation to nation level, but it's also true at a person to person level. 
And so we deal with a lack of peace in our own lives. Um, That's often, as Westerners, how we generally think about peace and peace at Christmas. Um, We usually psychologize the Bible's promise of peace, and it's fine to read Isaiah 2 and long for personal peace. Uh, James 4.1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And so all war, big ones and small ones, reflect the wars raging in the human heart. And so we do need God to bring us internal peace. Uh, That is a part of what we're longing for and imagining in the second week of Advent. But for most of human history, the greatest threat to individual peace was not psychological distress, but actual violence. Enemy violence, government violence, gang violence, criminal violence. Uh, Jesus was born into such a violent world with political factions and uprisings and empire. He had to flee the violence of Herod when he was just two years old. Uh, Political violence is still the reality for many, many people around the world. And so you can look back on 2020 and and see examples everywhere in Hong Kong and Ethiopia and Nepal and Iran. Uh, Here in our American cities, there was rioting, violence. In Advent, we long for a day, not only when we will be internally at peace, but when nations will not war anymore, when all humanity will be at peace. Jesus will be so esteemed that the nations will not need to fight. They will simply ask him to settle all their disputes. Isaiah 2, 4, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And so America will just call up China and Russia and say, hey friends, why fight over space? Let's ask Jesus what he thinks. Can you imagine a world like that where people come around scripture to settle their disputes when they come around in prayer? Isaiah even speaks of peace between species. In Isaiah 11, verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. Picture this world, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What could possibly bring about such radical change? Is it advancements in technology, in education? Is it more legislation, bigger government, tighter rules? Or is it more freedom, less government, less rules? Is it worldwide democracy? It is none of these things. This peace is achieved through a universal submission to the Lordship of Christ and his perfect, perfect law. Uh, Isaiah eleven nine again, they shall not destroy or hurt in all my holy mountain. Why? For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There will be a worldwide commitment to Jesus, to, his, to the Christ and his perfect law, which is the law of love. Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 3, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest 
of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And so this isn't just a prophecy of um, the mountain physically being raised to where sort of it's above Mount Everest, but it's in the minds of people. Uh, They will look to Zion. They will look to Jerusalem. They will look to God as the source of all life, of all hope, of all truth. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And this is remarkable in the Old Testament because at this point, only the Israelites go up uh, to Jerusalem every year. So there were three or four times that they would walk up to Jerusalem. They would make the trek and they would sing these psalms of ascent. They would be going up to the mountain of the Lord. But in Isaiah 2, it predicts that the entire world will make these religious paths. They will go up to the mountain themselves. What will this be like? In the spirit of Advent, I encourage you sometime this week to set a timer for five, ten minutes uh, and spend time dreaming about such a world. Just imagining what the newspapers would be like, what your relationship with your family would be like, what your relationship with your neighbors would be like. How would working be in this world? A world without war, a world without toxic politics, a world without dissension, without anger. Do you make time to long for that world? That's what Advent's for. Advent is the time where we sit in darkness. We see the darkness and we long for light. Do you long for that world? Do you pray for that world? Or like me, do you long for these metaphorical penthouses? uh, Somewhere that just saves me that doesn't save other people, that doesn't attend to all the brokenness. I can't deal with that, but will you just save me? Will you just bring me peace? It's hard to imagine what life will be like in our eternal future. It's fun to talk about it. I mean, it's really something when I say to set five or 10 minutes, man, have a conversation with other people and dream, like what will it be like? We are offered a little more clarity in Micah 4. Uh, Micah 4 is actually where Isaiah likely got this metaphor. Um, Isaiah and Micah would have been prophetic colleagues uh, serving uh, Judah as prophets at the same time in Israel's history. And in Micah 4, uh, verse 3, he begins the same way. He says, And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. So that's exactly what Isaiah 2 says. But he then adds this. He says, But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. And so if you're a Hebrew living in the time of Micah, this is the metaphor that describes what it will be like to live under God's eternal peace. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. Uh, Fig trees are kind of popular. Plants are popular now. Um... So you can maybe imagine sitting under your fig tree, if you have a fig tree, uh, what that would be like. It sounds pretty good, but I think we can update that for uh, 2020. Um, Think over 2020. 
What would it be like to not be afraid? No one shall make them afraid, for the Lord of hosts has spoken. The Lord of armies, the Lord of power, the Lord of might has spoken. No one shall make them afraid. It's been a scary year for many people. What could you have done with your time if you hadn't fearfully read all the political news? If you hadn't anxiously followed the COVID page on the Chronicle website or the stocks page or the unemployment website or whatever it is that made you fearful, if you had nothing at all to worry about, what would you have done with your time? What is your fig tree where you don't want for anything, where there are no worst case scenarios to think about? What will it be like in the final future to not ever be afraid of anyone or anything, to not be afraid of the violence of others, to not be afraid of the foolishness of others, to not be afraid of ourselves, my own foolishness, my own violence? Micah says and promises that profound peace will follow after global cosmic peace. And global cosmic peace will come when all people everywhere submit willingly to Jesus as their forever king. Uh, Bruce Waltke, the Old Testament commentator, writes, The dream of disarmament is backed up by the dream of agrarian well-being. The two dreams are inseparable. Those who have the swollen appetites of consumerism covet the vines and figs of others and therefore wage war to obtain them. Accordingly, they must live in fear of dying by the sword. But those who live according to the law are content with a modest lifestyle and with living by their own produce, having the happy prospect of peace and domestic felicity. If the nations could trust each other not to exploit one another, they could dismantle their military machines. The ideal of not coveting is fulfilled only in the kingdom of God. And so in this quote, Waltke reminds me how I participate in a lack of peace. My inability to be at peace is not just because of others' sin. It's not just because of politicians or governments or bosses or villains of any kind. It's because of my own. After all, I do not flock to Jesus to answer all my disputes. Um, I do not adore his law above everything else. I am not content to sit under my fig tree. Some of you might have heard that. I hear that. It's like, man, that, that would satisfy me for just a little bit, but eventually I would get bored, right? I don't want to just sit forever. I would be looking at uh, George's fig tree or Avery's fig tree and wondering, man, theirs seems so much better and begin to scheme and covet in my heart. I'm not putting down my weapons. Why? And this is why the prophecy of Isaiah 2 ends with the charge. It gives this beautiful future, but then it comes back to the present and it says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. O house of Jacob, if you find yourself compelled by this future of peace, when all the nations will flock to Zion to heed the wisdom of Jesus, if you long for the day when nations do not take up swords against each other, shouldn't you who already know God flock to Zion to hear from Jesus? 
Shouldn't you begin this process of peacemaking and peacekeeping? Alec Moje writes, if the God of Jacob is to be acknowledged by the world, those who know him already, the house of Jacob, have a special responsibility. But as James 4 says, we fight because we want what others have. God has given each of us a vine and a fig tree, but I'm not content to sit under my own vine and fig tree. Human covetousness drives violence. And what is covetousness but idolatry? Violence is fueled by idolatry. James 4 verses 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel, you adulterous people. And adultery against God deserves judgment, which admittedly causes more violence. Uh, God's judgment brings violence. Uh, Listen to how the prophet Joel takes this image of swords into plowshares and flips it on its head. Uh, Rather than calling us to dismantle our weapons, God challenges the nations to make new ones. Um, Prior to this, the context for this is he's listing all the ways that the nations have oppressed the righteous poor and widow and orphan, how they've stolen from his people. And he challenges them. He says, proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. In Joel 3, God is actually calling the nations to fight him. He's calling their bluff. If you're going to fight me, do it openly. Stop oppressing the poor and the widow and the orphan and the righteous. It's me you hate, and so it's me you should fight. Come and fight me if you want to fight. And so when we add Joel 2 to Isaiah 2 and figure out how are these connected, these seemingly opposite uh, prophecies, these opposite texts of Scripture, we realize that disarmament is not so much about disarming humans so we stop fighting each other, but disarming humans so we stop fighting God. That is the war that we are to put down. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, he says, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. The real miracle of Isaiah 2 and Malachi 3 is not that we have stopped fighting each other, but that we have stopped fighting God. That's the peace that is most inaccessible to us, the deepest peace, that we would not fight God but flock to him, that we would listen to his word, that we would sit contentedly under our very own fig tree, grateful for all that he's provided and not covet our neighbors or refuse to share with another neighbor. The prophets of God, Isaiah, Micah, Joel, and then Jesus, are inviting us all to lay down our weapons Against others, yes, but primarily against God. Are you going to keep fighting God, the all-powerful ruler of the universe? Or are you going to put down your weapons? So Joel 3, as he calls the nations to take up weapons against God, uh, he characterizes it as this, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. 
For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. What will you do? Do you want peace? Then put down your weapons. But we're scared. You can't be at peace if you're scared. How can we lay down our weapons while other people are still holding theirs? If nations are literally making weapons in space, like the United States and China and Russia, they all feel like, well, man, we need to do it. We don't want to be left behind. Isn't it wise to keep making weapons? More importantly, though, how can we lay down our weapons when God is still angry with us? When we are still liable to judgment, we have done violence to others. I've been angry at my brother. I have harbored hate in my heart. I have rebelled against God. And Jesus in Matthew 5 connects hate to hell. He connects anger to hell. Jesus says, I deserve that. And it's into this setting that God's angel appears to the shepherds. This mighty spiritual general appears to the shepherds. And rather than condemning them, he says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. This text just exudes peace. You can't read it without slowing down and breathing deep. And we live in such a violent world. Uh, We live fearful lives. And if anything it is right and just for God to come and turn up the heat to bring more violence, just violence, just judgment. But instead, at Christmas, with the incarnation, he sends a mighty angel that would scare the pants off of all of us. And what does he say? He says, fear not, for I am bringing you good news. In the gospel at Christmas, God says to all people everywhere, I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to fight you. Though you would turn your plowshares into swords against me, I will not yet do so against you. I'm here to offer you peace. Judgment will come for all those who ultimately refuse to relent. How could it not? Um, But here is an opportunity for forgiveness and reconciliation for all who believe and repent. And to prove it to you, God says, I'm actually going to lay down my arms for a second. I'm going to set down my weapons. I'm going to empty myself and take the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, to show you that it is not my will that any should perish. And being found in the form of a servant, he's going to be obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
In Jesus, God laid down his weapons, and more than that, he allowed weapons to be used against his son, against Jesus. It's baffling to God's enemies who are trained for war, who are used to war. At the cross, Jesus was mocked. In Luke 23, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. If you are the king of Jews, save yourself. But God allowed violence against his perfect son so that we might be granted the peace of forgiveness. This is the gospel, salvation from judgment through judgment on Jesus. Salvation from violence through violence on Jesus. And because of this, we have peace with God. There will come a day when there will be no more swords and spears. None. There will be no more violence. God will forcefully disarm humanity completely. Right now, though, at Christmas, we remember how God graciously disarmed himself for a time, and even now, He is disarmed. He invites us to do the same. In Jesus, he has made it possible for us to have peace with him. It's not all the peace he's promised. We look forward to so much more, but it is the all-important first step. And given the reality of this story, we hear the charge of Isaiah in chapter 2, verse 5. O house of Jacob, Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Can you hear that charge to yourself? Oh, citizens, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Father, we do long for a world without violence. And we just are so heartbroken when we see violence in the world, in our city. We see it in our country. We see it in in other countries in the world wide, in space. We see it in our homes and at work. And we are sick of it. We hate it. We also recognize that violence is in ourselves, that we harbor bitterness and hate and frustration, and we want freedom from it. Um, Freedom comes through Jesus, and it comes through obedience to the Lord. And so would you move all of us to pursue peace with you, uh, to walk in your light every day, to flock to you, and to call others to you? Would we be uh, people who bring good news of peace, Father, we love you. We uh, pray for this Advent season. Uh, Would you draw us closer to you um, in the weeks to come? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.